Hey, hey, my name is Brett Bivens. Welcome back to Venture Desktop. Each episode is an exploration of a key thread that I'm picking up on the ground as I think about, invest in, and work with companies that are building the future of work, wellness, media, cities, and industry. Those are the five often overlapping megatrends that I care a lot about and where I spend most of my time as an early stage venture investor at TechNexus. Venture Desktop is not long form, but it is a deep dive focused on highlighting, annotating, and more thoroughly understanding the trends, companies, and people shaping the rapidly changing world that we live in. So if you're interested in these areas or working in these areas as a founder, operator, or investor, I think you'll find the next few minutes very useful. I'd love to connect with you to hear your ideas for the show or to talk about ways that we can work together. You can find me on Twitter at Brett Bivens and can make sure you're first in line for new episodes and updates by signing up at VentureDesktop.com. All right, let's jump in. We're living through a transformational shift in consumer preference in both our personal and professional lives. Moving from one-size-fits-all brands, media, and retailers that leverage economies of scale for mass market exploitation to these global networks of niches and tastemaker-driven communities that are redefining the customer experience and creating entirely new systems of meaning for consumers. And this new era, which to a significant degree is centered around the wellness-driven consumer, is fundamentally reshaping and expanding addressable markets, creating massive opportunities for emerging companies, building communities, experiences that improve human health, happiness, and opportunity by totally reshaping the way that we live, move, and improve. The wellness-driven consumer is more informed, more principled, and in search of more lifestyle control than ever before. And the impact that this is having on the global economy is already well underway. To illustrate, Wellness-related spend now accounts for over 5% of global economic activity, which is pretty staggering, and is growing at almost 2x the rate of the broader economy. Americans spent $19 billion on gym memberships last year and a further $33 billion on sports equipment. Overall, fitness, which includes mind and body and a number of other things, is almost a $600 billion industry globally. And we're starting to see, which is, a, I think, a great sign, societal-level breakdowns and stigmas around things like mental health. In addition to that, the way that we eat is changing with over a third of people actively trying to transition to more plant-based diets. But things are really just getting started and there remains a massive impact gap despite all this increasing consumer spend and despite all this mind-blowing kind of uh, amount of capital that's gone into companies in this space. More stats to kind of drive that point home. 64% of Americans want to lower healthcare costs, not surprising, but 80% of Americans don't even meet minimum exercise requirements. This inactivity cost the U.S. economy $28 billion in medical expenses and lost productivity across you know, companies, insurers, but also out of the pockets of those individuals. And globally, the figures are pretty staggering $70 billion. Uh, the penetration of positive living hasn't yet transferred into the world of work, where we spend so much of our time every day. 61% of employees are burned out on the job thanks to a variety of factors. And you know, one of those factors, sleep deprivation, remains a major drag on productivity while hundreds of millions of people around the world, and in addition to that, suffer from these treatable, preventable, activity-limiting, musculoskeletal pain kind of related uh, maladies on a daily basis. What happens in this market over the next decade will have a profound shift on the global economy and more narrowly on the way that early stage companies are built and funded. It's also such a dynamic, organic space crossing so many different industries and demographic boundaries that in fact it is almost boundless and trying to understand it from a top-down perspective with too many of these preconceived categorizations is nearly impossible so instead i've tried to take a more bottoms-up trend following approach to the market so deeply understanding a few key catalysts people behaviors companies etc that are driving an outsized change in the market around how what and where consumers are engaging with wellness-centered lifestyles and hoping that 
those guide me towards more interesting people to work with, companies to invest in, et cetera. In this episode, I'm diving a bit deeper into a few of the major trends that I'm following closely. And in the interest of keeping these episodes digestible, uh, we'll follow up with a part two next week. So far, we've been through two major cycles of connected fitness and two recent events. So Fitbit's $1.2 billion acquisition by Google and Peloton's IPO, which I've linked to my favorite analyses of both of these events in the show notes. Not surprisingly, they both come from Ben Thompson at Stratechery. Uh, but both of these events were major inflection points for leaders from uh, kind of Fitness 1.0, Fitness 2.0, or at least Digital Fitness 1.0 and 2.0, and hint that we're on the verge of a third major wave in the market. A chart that I developed over the summer kind of drives this home and provides some context for the shift that we're in from fitness tracking, which was led by Fitbit, to content and community-centric companies led by Peloton, to a situation where fitness technology companies start to make a significant dent in digital healthcare. The first generation of companies were largely focused on tracking what we were doing, how many steps, how many calories, how many miles, but there was very little in the way of actionable insights. And perhaps most importantly is Under Armour and Adidas and many other corporates found out after making these splashy nine-figure acquisitions, there was really no strong retention hook to keep users coming back over time. What Peloton understood with high-quality videos featuring celebrity-like coaches or Zwift, which was last valued at $600 million, understood with its immersive multiplayer cycling game, or Strava, uh, which is also valued in the nine figures, understood with its vertical community focused very squarely on tapping the competitive nature of every athlete, is that without a strong reason for users to keep coming back to the product, value is pretty much capped. Now, this is borne out in the valuations we see relative to the companies that came before. And these insights, combined with ubiquitous mobile penetration, global distribution platforms like iOS and Android, have also opened up the international opportunity for companies in this market, with large opportunities being realized in Asia, so Keep in China, CureFit in India, Europe, Zwift, which I mentioned earlier, and Freeletics, and also in Latin America. So we have and will continue to see bigger companies in increasingly large markets here, and I'll talk more about that next week. But what comes next? You know, one of the criticisms that Peloton and others like Calm and Headspace and Meditation have received, like in this article from around the time of the Peloton IPO from CNBC's Chrissy Farr, is that their growth has not had a material impact on broader health outcomes. So basically, we haven't seen any trickle-down effect of connected fitness mania. Peloton has certainly started to address this and sees a significant market opportunity. I mean, they specifically call out a mission to democratize fitness in their S1 and have lowered prices and promised less expensive equipment uh, as well. But there are necessary trade-offs, I think, to building a lasting brand, uh, and I think something has to give between you know, this sort of modern luxury branding and positioning that Peloton has currently and the idea that they can actually bring connected fitness to the masses. So while Peloton has a ton of room for growth ahead, I don't expect that they'll actually be the company to capture a majority of the value from the next wave of connected fitness and wellness. Instead, in the same way that the most successful second-generation companies, again, like Peloton, Zwift, and Strava, bundled first-generation features like tracking and measurement, so think Peloton's leaderboard or Strava's route tracking, with more engaging content and community, the next generation of companies are going to build on top of that, viewing measurement, viewing content, viewing community as table stakes, and improving on those, but really innovating on technical elements that will drive real results in a way that sees connected fitness, which is inclusive of things like nutrition and sleep, start to eat a significant part of the digital healthcare market, which is a multi-hundred billion dollar opportunity globally. Uh, Keith Boy of Founders Fund spoke about this opportunity on a podcast recently with Village Global's Eric Torenberg, and we'll give that a quick listen here to kind of drive home that and point. Works. 
I want to play a game where we talk about requests for startups. So we name a sector and a space, and then you say where you think a big idea could, could come from it or where you want entrepreneurs listening to explore and experiment. First, we'll start with a personal favorite, fitness. My goal to incubate a fitness business with you at some point. What do you think is going to work in that space? There's so many things that haven't worked. What would you like to see people? Well, and the key to fitness is showing people results, compressing the feedback loop, which is there's proven models of how to get fit, and they're well understood. The art is delaying, deferring gratification so that you achieve the results you're looking for. And, you know, there's nutritional elements to fitness. There's certainly activity elements to fitness. There may be sleep elements. But net-net, it's a trade-off of immediate gratification versus hard gratification. And so I think the art to this is reducing the, compressing the feedback loop so that you get the positive feedback loop as quickly as possible, and that changes the dynamics. Yes, you can use data, you can quantify things, you can personalize things, certainly you can put individuals on a program that's more suited for their goals and aspirations than the average person. So the flaw of averages is also a real fundamental driver here, that generally people give advice that's made for the population as a whole, the middle of the bell curve, because there's more people in the middle of the bell curve, you can sell more books, more programs, more classes, whatever. But I think we're gonna move to a personalization model where for Keith, maybe the right thing to do is to do four classes of berries a day. And that's, a, I think, a pretty good explanation of uh, what we can expect and, and what comes next to a large degree. Uh, with passive and more accurate monitoring paired with smarter algorithms to drive precision treatment and nutrition, along with the ability to use AI to provide a one-to-one -one experience at global scale, we'll start to see companies cut significantly into the $68 billion of global productivity loss directly attributable to lack of exercise. We'll start to help the, you know, for example, 163 million Europeans who experienced activity limiting pain in the last week and start to address populations that have been overlooked by many of the popular products on the market today. One example of that, and I think it's a, a really great example, is aging women's health and elder care more broadly, which is an area that Lisa Blau of Able Partners has specifically called out as interesting to her and to her team. I think stigmas is also like a big part of our thesis. Um, we're very interested in like what happens when you can, you know, break apart a stigma or, or have a stigma splinter. There's like these shards of opportunity. So, you know, we put mental health and mental well-being within that stigma. Uh, we put um, aging women's health in that stigma. You know, lots of attention focused on women at a certain stage in their life and then they're sort of forgotten and overlooked and that broadly relates into the kind of elder care market. Um, we're also interested in, in caretaking broadly on the elderly side as well as on the child care side. And just to make things interesting as it relates to sort of this third generation of fitness companies that are coming down the pike, if I had to pick a single company out there today that I believe will be the big winner of this third generation, and I think there'd be a lot of big winners. I think it's, it's not a winner take all type of market. There's going to be big companies built everywhere around the world. But to project the one single big winner, I'll go with CureFit out of India. Uh, I'll be spending a lot more time talking about them next week in part two, but suffice to say, I think they have 10X plus upside over the next five years from the $800 million valuation that they reportedly raised capital at in late 2019. But just because we're on the verge of an inflection point in the fitness market doesn't mean that the current landscape, specifically around connected fitness, is anything close to settled. I think that's pretty clear if you follow the market to any uh, meaningful degree, even passively. If you want a primer on where the current state of the market is, so funding and other data, uh, different go-to-market strategies that companies are employing, different long-term product and community visions, 
but I highly recommend checking out a couple of pieces from Fit Insider. Two specifically, the Connected Fitness Wars and the Connected Equipment Report. And I link to both of those in the show notes as well. It's clear that there is a significant amount of hype and capital pouring into the space. And from what we're seeing coming down the pipe from some of our own portfolio companies in this market, there's a lot more exciting and innovative stuff on the roadmap in the future. But there's also a lot of doubt being cast at the space. Do any of these companies have real defensible technology or network effects that will stand the test of time, given that there seems to be new companies launched into the market every day? How big is the actual market? Can it support multiple billion dollar companies? And sort of the, the one thing that you always come back to and you always hear is like, will these companies go the way of their ancestors and turn into these expensive clothes drying racks? And so as an investor in so many companies with their hands in different parts of this market, I've been reassessing my point of view on where, if anywhere, long-term competitive advantage can come from and how sustainable the market itself actually is. These few bullet points that follow aren't really conclusions about any particular company or strategy, but are more observations around the likelihood that we'll see a long-term trend towards at-home connected equipment, pulling spend away from gyms, boutiques, and other brick and mortar facilities, and whether there is actually space long-term for multiple billion dollar businesses to be built alongside Peloton. So, I mean, first, I think it's clear that Peloton and others have influenced demand and behavior beyond the core markets. That's created a tailwind behind other players in the space as well. And, you know, Peloton's already shown a really strong ability to land and expand within households, which seems to be the basis for the stat that you see here from an email that they sent to members touting an increase in the number of monthly workouts per Peloton membership, jumping substantially from 8.8 .8 in 2018 to 12 in 2019. Uh, and to go back to an earlier point, they actually seem willing to risk their brand position for a land grab opportunity that I assume is based on data that they have about how people outside their primary demographic are you know, wanting to associate themselves with the Peloton brand. Again, I do think it's likely that they made this leap too early and both won't be able to address the mass market demand as effectively as they think they will be able to, and also risk diluting the brand with their core customers, which both uh, you know, taken together kind of create opportunities for competitors that they have in this space. The second piece is all around access. Um, to help capture the demand that I'm talking about, that Peloton's generating, that a lot of these other companies are generating, we've seen financing companies like Affirm help Peloton kind of step in and help these other companies as well, make expensive pieces of hardware, expensive pieces of equipment actually accessible to the average consumer. So the decision is no longer between a $3,000 piece of equipment, which you're either you know, putting a big cash outlay into right up front or putting on a high APR credit card uh, versus a monthly gym membership. You know, As you see here, uh, Peloton offers pretty great terms, 0% APR financing, no money down and $58 a month, which gets them into the ballpark of actually competing with somebody's gym membership. Uh, as they noted on their first earnings call, you know, they've been able to work with a firm to bring that price point down. And again, I think this is something that shows a, a pretty significant potential for bending long-term spend in the category towards connected personal equipment, at-home equipment, uh, and away from brick and mortar experiences. So here's an explanation of that category from William Lynch, who was the company's president on their first earnings call from November. Uh, great, thanks so much. And I'll resist asking any online travel questions. Um, so I'm curious, I know it's early, but could you talk about how the home trial and marketing campaigns are performing against expectations? Are you seeing any differences in the demographics and engagement among new customers versus who you shipped to previously? And then how do you get comfortable with forecasting that around the holiday season? Thanks. Hey, Justin, it's, it's William Lynch. Um, 
I'll take both of those. On home trial, it's still early days. As John and Jill said, we launched it September 12th, so it was really last two weeks of the quarter. Um, so the, the, the impetus for home trial is uh, our brand marketing team, led by Carolyn Tishbaud, that does a, uh, a lot of great research around the biggest barriers to purchase are bikes and treads. And what we found were the two biggest barriers were price, affordability, and then, um, and then will I use it? And so we did a test. We don't guess. Uh, we test almost everything in terms of major programs. We did a test earlier, uh, earlier this year around home trial, and what it showed is substantial lift in the markets we tested it in. And um, since launching 30 days free, bring it home, try it, um, we've been really encouraged by the results. So, um, again, both and – then, and then secondly, on the marketing, our big push this holiday is both home trial – as well as um, for the first time ever promoting a $58 bike. So with our 39-month financing, zero APR, consumers have the ability to get a bike for $58 a month, and we're underwriting all the costs. So it's an incredible deal. We think it's the best deal in fitness. Interestingly, that goes right against the gym, uh, average gym membership uh, that most people pay, which is on average $58 a month. So between um, attacking the affordability um, sort of perception with with promoting the $58 with heavy TV weights and then early results on home trial. We feel great about holiday, and, and again, we feel like we're attacking the two biggest barriers to purchase. And the final observation about the long-term sustainability of at-home fitness that I'll share and that I haven't really seen anyone discussing around the overall size of the market and the shifting dynamics of the market is that there's simply a structural shift to doing more things at home. Uh, according to the American Time Use Survey, which is conducted annually by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Americans spend on average an extra eight days at home uh, in 2012 compared to 2003. One less day traveling, one week less in non-residential buildings. The greatest change was seen in young people, ages 18 to 24, who spent 70% more time at home compared to the general population. And you know, as those people kind of grow in the, in the job market, as they uh, make more money, and as younger people continue to kind of backfill, I think we'll continue to see this be the case. Um, it seems reasonable to assume that those underlying shifts will persist over time. You know, more of an orientation to on-demand service procurement and shifting work situations. Um, and you can see here in this chart that the percentage of Americans that actually travel out of their home to purchase goods and services has continued to fall year after year. And so, you know, as, as we see that, as we see work situations uh, coupled with uh, some of the behavioral and access related changes mentioned above, you start to see how you can get comfortable with there being some staying power for the best companies in this market. I'm also closely following how capital is being deployed by some of the larger players in the at-home market. We'll touch on that next week in part two. And then for the last few trends I'm following, we'll look more toward the broader wellness-driven consumer market to dive into wellness-focused travel, the future of wellness work, and what company creation opportunities there are around mass market wellness education, which is, a, I think, a really interesting topic. To kind of close out the podcast or the uh, video annotation or whatever you want to call this thing uh, today, we'll jump to a quick hit section that I call re-readables, re-listenables, and retweetables. We're inundated with new content, new blog posts, trending tweets, and podcasts that hit the top of our feed. But these things often have a shelf life that's shorter than it should be. So here we jump back in time, a few news cycles or a few years to pull out some gems you may have missed on the category of the day, which is consumer wellness and the wellness-driven consumer. You've heard me reference the Fit Insider uh, website and newsletter a couple of times. 
already in this episode. And to keep this brief, if you're interested at all in any part of wellness, from fitness to nutrition to travel, their newsletter is an absolute must read. You should definitely go subscribe to it. Uh, they do an amazing job. I'll also shout out a post from my colleague, Andrew Wollahan, who I work closely with on a lot of our fitness and wellness-related investing. The post is called Value Migration and the Modern Fitness Brand, and he takes an informative look at all the phases of brand building the fitness industry has gone through over the years, from traditional brick and mortar to boutique to at home. It's a really great read that kind of pulls together all these different threads that are going on in the market. The re-listenable this week is about WW, so formerly Weight Watchers. It's a company that I don't see discussed very often. Uh, but is actually quite central to the rise of both consumer wellness and to do a quick callback to uh, a different episode of Venture Desktop to the rise of consumer subscription. So this post is a discussion between this company's CEO, Mindy Grossman, and Kara Swisher on Recode Decode. And it's a really great look at the company, provides a, a good kind of rundown of how they've transitioned the business over time uh, to become digital first, to become focused on subscriptions, and to build some really interesting partnerships with digital players in the market. And for my retweetable this week, uh, it comes from Josh Wolf of Lux Capital, where he shares his long thesis for MindBody. So this is not a category that Josh invests in, not a, uh, not a market that he uh, dives too deep in normally, but uh, he put together this kind of long uh, position uh, thesis about MindBody for an event with some friends. And uh, it turned out to be extremely prescient. It's a really, really great look at how to think about value creation in this market specifically, but also how to evaluate companies and competitive advantage more generally. So definitely recommend checking that out. I'll be back next week with part two of this wellness-driven consumer trend following topic. And after that, I'll be looking at topics like AirPods as an industrial work platform, the past, present, and future of USVC firms in Europe, which is a topic close to uh, my day-to-day -day work into my heart, I guess, uh, and some of the missing pieces for the next step in building fully distributed companies. If you have any suggestions for topics, always feel free to get in touch with me via email or via Twitter at Brett Bivens. Thank you so much for watching, for listening, for reading, and I look very forward to talking with you again soon. Thanks.